So uh, what is the meaning of life? It's kind of, kind of an important question, probably at least near the top, right, of life's most important questions. Where do we go to find an answer? Well, this week I decided to ask Siri. So, hey, Siri, what is the meaning of life? I give up. <laughs> Come on, better than that. Hey, Siri, what's the meaning of life? I don't know, but I think there's an app for that. <laughs> okay. Well, you know, uh, I was disappointed earlier this week as well. Uh, as with most of the questions that I ask Siri, Siri just really doesn't come through. So w- where could I go? Well, I went back to my phone again, but this time I went to the Bible app, right? And, and this is what I discovered. The, the most important question, according to Jesus, is not what is the meaning of life. According to Jesus, the most important question is, who do you say that I am? But according to Jesus, the most important question is, is his identity. And if that is answered correctly, then all of the other important questions in life will fall into place. The problem is, for most people, uh, we don't actually go to Jesus himself to answer the question. Including, Including us in the church. We come up with ideas in our minds about how we expect Jesus to be. And behave, or what we want or wish him to be like, rather than what he says about himself, who who he truly is. Right? I have different versions of Jesus depending on what's going on in my life. Right? I have uh, prosperity Jesus. Jesus exists to make me happy and healthy and wealthy. I don't really need to be saved from anything. I just need Jesus to get busy on my behalf, fixing things. Right? I have political Jesus who comes around uh, every few years, and I need Jesus then to intervene and get my party or my person elected so that they can bring in, I don't know, some form of the kingdom. Right? That's my political Jesus. I also have a self-improvement Jesus. I want Jesus to make me into a better version of myself. I have also warm and fuzzy Jesus, right? Jesus, I don't want you to fix anything about me. I just want you to make me feel good about myself. And we have all other versions of Jesus that don't actually have anything necessarily to do with who Jesus is himself. In Matthew chapter 12, Jesus says, this is who I am. Not as you might wish me to be or hope me to be, dream me to be, expect me to be, fear me to be, but just that this is who I am. And the national leaders have to make a decision on behalf of the nation. Will they believe in Jesus as he is? Will they follow Jesus as he is? Or will they go their own path? So I want you to turn with me to Matthew chapter 12, and we're going to see what Jesus says about himself this morning. But as you're turning there, let's do a quick review of the Bible. Okay, quick review. 2,000 years before Jesus was born, Abraham received a promise. The promise was that he would have a descendant, a seed, or a son in the future that would come from him, and that descendant would bring blessing, that is, all of God's best, to all of the nations of the earth. He would reverse the curse and instead bring blessing to the people. About a thousand years before Jesus was born, uh, David received a promise. And in his promise, he was told that he would have a seed or a descendant, a son, who would be Abraham's son also, and that son would be king. And he would rule and reign on the throne forever, and he would bring in those promised blessings that were given to Abraham through Israel, and he would rule and reign from Israel over all nations, and there would be peace and prosperity physically as well as spiritually. 
500 years before Jesus was born, the prophets were told that one is coming, that seed, that son, he is coming. And when he comes, he will bring with him a new covenant, a better covenant. He will remove that heart of stone and he will put inside of you a heart of flesh that is a longing, a desire, and an ability, a strength to do the will of God. You will be changed. You'll be transformed because God's spirit will be a gift given to you. And yes, you will have safety and prosperity. You will have relief from your enemies. You'll have physical blessings and spiritual blessings. And that one will rule and reign from Jerusalem to all nations and bless all nations. And that one is coming. Matthew chapter 1, Matthew tells us Jesus is the one. Jesus is the one. He was born to the right family, the right place, at the right time. He was affirmed in his baptism. He came up out of the water and the father spoke from heaven and he said, this is the one. This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. And then the spirit compelled him to go into the wilderness and he demonstrated his righteousness. When Israel had gone into the wilderness, they had failed miserably. But when Jesus went into the wilderness, he depended only on the word of God and the spirit of God and he proved himself to be perfectly righteous. He showed this is what a man can do when a man lives in complete dependence upon the father. Then in chapters 5 through 11, Jesus reveals himself as the one through his teaching, Sermon on the Mount, through the miracles that he does over and over and over again. And then at the end of chapter 11, he offers himself to the nation as king. Chapter 12, the leadership has to make a decision one way or the other. And what you're presented with, in a sense, in chapter 12 is two different visions of life. Two two different pathways. One is the pathway of, of Jesus, the Son of God. The other is the pathway of the Pharisees, the spiritual leaders. And they have to make a choice. Will they stay on their own pathway or will they turn? Will they follow Jesus? And will they trust Jesus? And Jesus builds his whole concept of what life should be about around this this, this really rich idea of Sabbath rest. Sabbath rest. He says in Matthew chapter 11, verse 28, Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Sabbath rest is essentially life as it was meant to be. Sabbath rest is life as it was meant to be. We're introduced to the concept all the way back in the book of Genesis, chapter 2. On the seventh day, God completed his work which he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work which he had done. Then God blessed the seventh day, and God sanctified it, because in it he rested from all his work which God had created and which God had made. Seventh day, he set it apart, and he rested. Why did God rest? Because he was exhausted? No. He wasn't tired of all his activity in the first six days. He was setting a pattern for us to imitate. In fact, all of the things that God does, he expects us to imitate in some form or fashion. And so God got to the seventh day and he set one day apart. It was a day unlike any other day. There are no boundaries of time. We don't have this, there was evening and there was morning, seventh day. There's no boundaries of time. Uh, there's no, no speaking by God or proclaiming by God or separating by, by God. In fact, on this really, really special, holy, different day, we'd expect God to do something dramatic. In fact, what God does is nothing. He doesn't do anything. Instead, he sets this day apart and he says, I want you to imitate me. On this day, I want you to Sabbath, which means cease. Stop. Stop what you've been doing all day long. Stop all of your your toiling and striving and instead on this day, just receive. 
right? Enjoy all of the blessings that I have given to you. I want you to go deep into the things that refresh body as well as spirit and mind. Go deep into the blessings and the riches of the gifts that I have given you. So stop your striving in all of these other six days and rest. Rest. Let me illustrate this for you. In Genesis chapter 5, verse 29, Lamech says this. He calls his name Noah. Why? Because he says, this one will give us rest from our work and from the toil of our hands arising from the ground which the Lord God has cursed. Any idea by anyone what the name Noah means? Maybe you named your child Noah and you looked it up in a book. You go, I know, I can nail it. I'm going to win the quiz this morning. I will tell you, in 915, no one got it. No one got it. Noah. Anybody know what Noah means, the name? Oh, gosh, man. Usually this service is just so much better than 915. But never mind. It's all right. The name Noah means rest. The name Noah means Noah. It means rest. Right? This is what Lamech is saying. God made a promise to Eve that Eve would have a son. And that son would crush the adversary. And in the process of crushing adversary, he would overturn the curse, instead bring blessing. So no longer would we have to toil day after day by the sweat of our brow and have thorns and thistles. Instead, this one would reverse the curse and bring in the blessing. And he's saying, maybe my son will be that son. I'm going to name him Rest. Well, it wasn't Noah. Noah was a pretty good guy, but it wasn't Noah. But this represents the longing of our hearts. That day in and day out isn't toil and struggle and hardship. But that every day is, in a sense, a day when we can just receive blessing from God. In fact, that's what the Sabbath is for. God said, I'm going to set aside one day a week, and it's going to give you a foretaste of what every day will be like in the kingdom. Got that? The Sabbath day will be a foretaste or a foreshadowing your best day, the day when you're not toiling and striving, you're just receiving from God. That day will be a shadow or a foretaste of what absolutely every day will be like in the kingdom of God. Every day in the kingdom of God will be your best day, (laughs) your best day ever. So I want you to stop periodically and remember that's what God has promised. Jesus says, this is what life will be like. Hey, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Now, these are two different visions, I would say, of the very nature of God. Do you know that uh, nine out of 10 Americans believe in God, but 75% of them believe that either God is distant and uninvolved or harsh and judgmental? which I would argue is one of the greatest barriers to people entering into a relationship with God is they have this preconceived idea of what God is like. And in fact, in Matthew chapter 12, we're presented with two different visions of God, one in which you must toil and strive constantly because you never actually measure up to God's standards. You're never actually approved by God and loved unconditionally by God, so you're always laboring and working. And then there's Jesus' vision, which he says, no, come to me. And I will give you rest. I will give you the best life that you can possibly have. So I want you to read with me his offer. Matthew chapter 11, beginning in verse 28. Jesus says, Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, 
and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. Jesus says, I'm the source, right? I am the only place that you can find rest. He says, come to me. He doesn't say, come to the new list of rules. Right? He doesn't give him a new list. He doesn't give him a revised list. He doesn't give him a better list. He doesn't say, let me reinterpret the old list. He says, no, come to me. I'm, I'm a person. Come to me and I will give you rest. Right? He says, come, in fact, all of you who are weary and heavy laden. And, you know, in Jesus' day, the people were weary and burdened. They were, their lives were really heavy. They, they were poor. This was a nation that was largely subsistence living, right? hand to mouth, day to day. And there were days when they missed meals and they went hungry and they suffered. There was a lot of disease. They didn't have great medical care. There was a great deal of demonic activity in that day, intense spiritual warfare. They were oppressed by Roman, the Roman government, so they were taxed even though they were poor. The Romans took what little they had and they didn't have hope. Their political and spiritual leaders didn't offer them hope. They were weary and heavy laden. And maybe some of you walked in this morning and you say, you know, that's me. It's hard for me to really deeply enter into that worship because there's so many things that are so heavy on my heart and my mind. Or maybe you have friends and family members who are just carrying really heavy burdens and maybe you're carrying that with them. Most people carry a heavy load. And so often we, we toil in the midst of that. Let me describe what that looks like. Toiling is when we're, we're never content. Right? What we can achieve or what we can obtain, it just never feels like enough. Toiling is when we're never confident. Right? Who we are or who we can even imagine becoming is never enough. And that's based upon our understanding, our vision of who God is and what God is like. And Jesus says, no, I have a vision for you and it's Sabbath. It's, it's, a, it's a day and it's a kingdom in which you, you receive from me. Because I don't actually need anything from you. I don't. I don't need to take from you. I just want to give to you. And maybe you're weary and maybe you're laboring and maybe you're toiling right now. But people in Israel certainly were. And Jesus comes and he offers them a different life. He says it like this. Take my yoke upon you. For I am gentle. My yoke is easy. My burden is light. Well, that seems to me like a little bit of a contradiction in terms, right? What is a yoke? Well, uh, I'm, I'm not a farmer I'm not the son of a farmer. I've never farmed. I always thought it'd be cool to farm because I, you know, I drive by those fields and I see the straight rows and I think that'd be really neat. But I would do it in an air-conditioned cab, right? On <laughs> a really big tractor. That's how, that's the kind of farming I would do. I actually had a, a friend came up afterwards and said, come to my farm. You know, I, I work at farm and we actually have a tractor. It's not only air-conditioned, but it's GPS. You don't drive. You just sit, right? You punch the button and all the rows are perfectly straight. I'm like, farming. I'm in. I want to do that kind of farming. I don't want to do this kind of farming, right? The yoke is that bar. It's that wooden bar. It would go across the neck of the oxen to keep them in line. Or it was a bar that went across the neck of a man to carry a heavier load. Jesus says, I have a yoke. My yoke means my way. But if you come to me, you are accepting my vision of life. But my yoke is easy and my burden is light. What does he mean by that? 
Remember Sermon on the Mount? Jesus said, unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and the Pharisees, forget about it. That doesn't sound light to me. He goes on, he says, actually, I need you to be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. That doesn't, that doesn't sound light to me. But what Jesus was offering is this. He was offering his righteousness. Right? Not toiling or striving any longer, but receiving his righteousness as a gift. Placed in us through the spirit. The spirit was the promise. The spirit was the gift. When the spirit lives inside of you, Jesus creates within you both a desire, a longing for genuine holiness and an ability to be transformed into a different person. So not another list of rules that I live up to, but actually within me a desire, a longing, a a capacity to become a different person. Jesus says, what I demand of you, I have already accomplished, and I will now perform through you. My yoke is easy. My burden is light. And this is a completely different vision of life than what the Pharisees were offering. They They had a yoke as well. Their yoke was the law and their interpretation of the law. And if you were to convert to Judaism even today, you'd be expected to make a statement that you're willing to take on the yoke of the law and live under the law. And for the people, it was burdensome. Right? The Sabbath was not really a day of rest. It was a long list of things that you can't do, and it created fear that you might violate one of those rules or regulations. It wasn't about what you can do and what you receive from the Lord as much as what you can't do. The Mishnah is a commentary on the Old Testament, and even in the Mishnah it says this. Mishnah laments that the rules about the Sabbath are as mountains hanging by a hair. The rules about the Sabbath are as a mountain hanging by a hair, heavy and oppressive. Jesus spoke about this in Matthew chapter 23. He said, they, that is the scribes and the Pharisees, your spiritual leaders, tie up heavy burdens and lay them on men's shoulders, but they themselves are unwilling to move them with so much as a finger. When the church was first born, they wrestled with the gospel and law. And what's the relationship between the two? And what kind of burdens should we or should we not put upon people? And they came to this conclusion. No, salvation is by grace through faith. Grace means God loves you. God provides rest for you. God provides righteousness for you as a gift. Chapter 15, verse 10, they said this. Now, therefore, why do you put God to the test by placing upon the neck of the disciples a yoke which neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear, we say no. We say no to toil and striving. We say yes to a Savior who gives us rest, who gives us his gift of righteousness. Which vision will you choose? Which vision of life? Matthew 12, the people had to make a choice. The spiritual leaders had to make a choice on behalf of the people. And so what you see in chapter 12 is a series of challenges to Jesus' authority to define what life is all about. All under the context of Sabbath and Sabbath rest. Read with me chapter 12, verse 1. This is the first challenge to Jesus' authority. Chapter 12, verse 1. At that time, Jesus went through through the grain fields on the Sabbath. And his disciples became hungry and began to pick the heads of grain and to eat. But when the Pharisees saw this, they said to him, Look, your disciples do what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath. 
but they were hungry. Jesus says to them, have you never read, which was a veiled insult, right? Because they had read it lots of times. Haven't you ever read what David did when he and his men were hungry? They actually went into the temple and they were given the holy bread, which is only lawful for the priests to eat, but they were hungry. Because here's the principle. Man wasn't made for the Sabbath, as if God needed man to give him something. Sabbath was made for man. Sabbath was made as a gift to man to remind man that every day in the kingdom will be like this, where you're, you're just receiving the blessings of God. So don't misunderstand. He says in verse 8, the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. Now, this is actually a statement of deity. It's a statement of deity because the Sabbath, we're told throughout the Bible, is the Lord's. The Lord made it. He controls it. He's the one who gave it meaning and purpose. It's his day. He set it apart for our good. And now Jesus says, well, I'm the Lord of that. I'm the master of that. I'm, I am God. Second confrontation happens in verse, begins in verse 9. It says, departing from there, he went into their synagogue, and a man was there whose hand was withered. And they questioned Jesus, asking, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? Why? So that they might accuse him. And he said to them, what man is there among you who has a sheep, and if it falls into a pit on the Sabbath, will he not take hold of it and lift it out? How much more valuable then is a man than a sheep? So then, of course, it's lawful to do good on the Sabbath. Then he said to the man, stretch out your hand. And he stretched it out and was restored to normal like the other. But the Pharisees went out and conspired against him as to how they might destroy him. Matt talked about miracles. And there's a sense in which miracles actually aren't supernatural. They're just natural. Miracles are really, in a sense, just a restoration of normal. It's not normal. It's not natural for this man's hand to be curled up. That's not the fullness of blessing. And so the miracle is this. God intervenes and restores normal. Right? So, of course, wouldn't the Sabbath be a wonderful day to do that, to receive that gift? Jesus says, of course. Of course it would, because man wasn't made for the Sabbath as if God needs something from us on that day that he can't get on his own. No, Sabbath was made for the man, for man to be blessed. So, of course, it's a good thing to do good on the Sabbath. Third confrontation begins in verse 22. Then a demon-possessed man who was blind and mute was brought to Jesus, and he healed him so that the mute man spoke and saw. Wow. Man, this guy, he is, he is just, he's messed up. Right? He's got, it's, it's like everything has gone wrong for him. He can't see, he can't speak, and so he's trapped inside of himself. But inside of himself, he has demons that are tormenting him, and he can't express anything about it. He can't even cry out for help because he's mute, he can't speak. And Jesus, in a moment, heals the man on the Sabbath. He does good for him on the Sabbath, and the crowds react. Notice what they say in verse 23. It says, all the crowds were amazed, and they were saying, this cannot be the one The son of David, can he? And the way it's stated in Greek actually indicates they're still doubting. There's still doubt in their minds, but the door is opening up. Maybe he is the one, and that is a threat to the Pharisees' power, to their control over the people, to their vision of life and their understanding of God. So they react in verse 24. 
When the Pharisees heard this, they said, This man casts out demons only by Beelzebul, who is the ruler of the demons. He casts them out by the ruler of the demons. Now, when my kids were little, we played lots of games together. And they discovered pretty early on that if they had control over the rules, they could control the outcome, right? So we'd be playing a game, and then they would uh, ignore a rule or add a rule or modify a rule or apply a rule to me and then not apply the rule to themselves because if they could control the rules, then they could control the outcome, right? Well, that's what's happening here. The Pharisees see the miracle. They can't deny the miracle. So what do they do? Well, we've got to change the rules. Obviously, Jesus, since we already know that you're evil— And we can't deny the miracle itself, which is good. You must have done this thing by the power of Satan. That's what empowers you. That's what animates you. And Jesus warns them. He says, whoa. You're about to cross the line. And if you cross this line, there will be no going back for you or for the nation. He warns them. Verse 30. He who is not with me is against me. He who does not gather with me scatters. Therefore, I say to you, any sin and blasphemy shall be forgiven people. But blasphemy against the Spirit shall not be forgiven. Whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man, it shall be forgiven him. But whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit, it shall not be forgiven him, either in this age or in the age to come. Jesus is giving them a warning. Jesus is giving them one last chance to turn and change in their understanding of him and to receive him as Messiah. Now, I will tell you, in in all of my years working uh, as a pastor, there's some questions that keep coming up over and over and over again. Matthew chapter 12, 30 through 32 is one of them. What is the blasphemy of the Spirit? What is the impardonable sin? And maybe more to the point, could I do that? Am Am I at risk? The answer to that, church, is no. Okay, no, and you can write no in your margin if you want. No, you're, you're not. Okay, let me explain. This is a specific sin at a specific point in history. Remember, at Jesus' baptism, the Spirit comes upon him. It's an Old Testament phrase for the empowerment of the Spirit of God. He's affirmed by the Father, this is my Son in whom I am well pleased. And the Spirit takes him and drives him into the wilderness and guides him and leads him around and directs him. And then the Spirit takes him to different places. And Jesus speaks only the words which the Father has told him to speak. That's the testimony of the Father. And the Spirit does miracles through him. That's that's the testimony of the Spirit of God. And so they have the witness of Jesus to himself about who he is. The testimony of the Father, all the words that he speaks in teaching. The witness or testimony of the Spirit and the miracles that have been done, that's the third testimony. That's the last testimony that this generation will receive, right? And this generation is uniquely responsible to believe in Jesus, to receive him on behalf of the nation as their Messiah. Why? Because they got to hear Jesus and they got to see Jesus. They got to see the miracles. And so blasphemy against the Holy Spirit is this, calling the works of Jesus the works of Satan. And he says, you're about to hit a point of no return. This is the final testimony. This is the final moment for you. And if you choose to say that the work of the Spirit is the work of Satan, 
you will bring judgment upon yourselves and upon this nation. That is blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. That's what that means. Now, an aside. This is bonus material, right? Is it possible for a person in our day and age to say no to Jesus, right? And, 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 and no to what God's word says and no to the spirit who's drawing them into a relationship with God? Can they say no, 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 and end their lives saying no to God? Yes, that is possible, right? That's just not what Matthew 12 is talking about. Is it possible that they would reject and reject and reject? Sure, that is possible. But we know that as long as there's breath in them, there's still hope. Because God's spirit is always seeking and saving that which is lost. He's always going after those who are lost. That's why we keep praying for people who are stubborn. That's why we keep sharing the gospel with people who are stubborn. Because there's always hope as long as there is breath in their lives. Can they push off and push off and push off? Yeah. But we don't quit. Because the spirit doesn't quit. Now, again, that's just bonus material to motivate you to share the gospel with people who are stubborn. And don't quit. Matthew chapter 12, blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. This is a particular point in time. This is not directly applicable to us. And it's certainly not ever applicable to the church. But it is applicable to them. It's a warning. Jesus says, watch out. You're about to cross a threshold and not be able to come back. Look at verse 34. You brood of vipers. Remember who said that first? John the Baptist. And who was he talking to? Spiritual leaders of that day. That's who Jesus is talking to in this moment. He says, you brood of vipers. How can you being evil speak what is good? For the mouth speaks out of that which fills the heart. What's he talking about? Speaks what? Speaks blasphemy against the spirit or speaks reception of Jesus. Specific words. Verse 36, but I tell you that every careless word that people speak They shall give an accounting for it in the day of judgment. For by your words, you will be justified. And by your words, you will be condemned. Speaking of the spiritual leadership, because your words flow out of your heart and reflect what you believe about the greatest question in life. Who do you say that I am? Who do you say that I am? So Jesus warns them. And then they reject him. Final rejection. Verse 38. It says, then some of the scribes and Pharisees said to him, teacher, we want to see a sign. Well, they'd seen a sign, right? They'd seen lots of signs. They'd seen many signs over and over again. They'd actually seen one of the greatest signs of all the miracles that were ever done by Jesus. This one of, of giving this man who's, who's blind and mute and demon-possessed, instantaneous, perfect healing. They had seen sign after sign after sign. And Jesus says, I, I know what you're doing here. You're asking for a sign. You're not on your knees in repentance, sackcloth and ashes, saying, forgive us for rejecting you. You are our Messiah. They're saying, we don't want you. So Jesus said, no, you're not going to get a sign. Except for the sign of the resurrection. Verse 39, Jesus pronounces judgment on this generation. says, he answered and said to them, an evil and adulterous generation craves for a sign. And yet no sign will be given to it but the sign of Jonah the prophet. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the sea monster, so the Son of Man will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. But the men of Nineveh will stand up with this generation at the judgment, and they will condemn it because they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And you know what? Something 
far greater than Jonah is here. You're responsible. You're accountable because you've heard the teaching. You've seen the miracles. The queen of the south will rise up with this generation at the judgment and will condemn it because she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. Behold, something greater than Solomon is here. And in fact, that's exactly what happened. That generation came under judgment, A.D. 70. Titus came in and he destroyed the city of Jerusalem and he ransacked the temple and he didn't leave a single stone unturned and the nation of Israel was scattered. That is, with this decision, these leaders on behalf of the nation sealed their fate. They would come under judgment. And it's, it's the generation, right? It's not every single individual. There was still a remnant among the Israelites, among the Jews who believed. All of the apostles were Jewish. All of the early church was Jewish. But what happened is Paul went out and he began to proclaim the gospel as he'd find a few receptive Jews and then great hardness of heart. And within half a, a, half a generation, the church would become almost entirely non-Jewish, but Gentile. Because they had said no to Jesus. Right, this is really, this is a turning point. This is a turning point. What we see from this point on is Jesus no longer offers the kingdom of heaven. He used to go out and he would say, the kingdom of God is among you. The kingdom of heaven is among you. The kingdom of heaven is near. The kingdom of heaven is here. He was offering the kingdom. He was offering himself. Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden. I will give you rest. But he doesn't do that. After the end of Matthew chapter 12, Jesus doesn't offer the kingdom again. Instead, he turns and he starts teaching in parables. These word pictures. I want you to read one of them with me. Chapter 13, verse 31. Matthew 13, verse 31. It says, He presented another parable to them, saying, The kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed, which a man took and he sowed in his field. And this is smaller than all the other seeds. But when it is full grown, it is larger than the garden plants and becomes a tree so that the birds of the air come and nest in its branches. It says, The kingdom of heaven is, it's now not going to be what you expected. Right? The Davidic kingdom was, was unmistakable, right? That's a, that's a conquering army marching in and destroying all enemies and establishing the kingdom of God from Jerusalem and it goes out into all the earth. And Jesus says, now, you know what? The kingdom of God is going to be a little bit more mysterious. It's not going to be at all like what you expect. Instead, it's going to be kind of like a mustard seed. Really, really small, but then slowly growing. It's going to be like leaven in a lump of dough. Really small, but then slowly growing. It's going to be the church, actually. It's going to be a mystery. A form of the kingdom that you weren't expecting. A form of the kingdom that's really not obvious. And unless you have spiritual insight, you're going to miss it. That's why I'm going to speak in parables. Right? The disciples said, why, why, why parables now? You used to teach so directly, Jesus, and we got it. But now we're confused. Why parables? And said, so, well, because parables do two things. They, they conceal truth to those who've rejected me. And they reveal truth. For the, through the illumination of the Spirit to those who have received me. And so that's where we're going now. Kingdom's not going to look like what you expect. In fact, really, the, the story turns dark from this point in time. Jesus marches resolutely toward Jerusalem, telling his disciples privately, I'm going to be rejected, I'm going to be crucified, I'm going to rise from the dead. But he doesn't turn back. He just keeps marching toward Jerusalem, toward rejection, toward crucifixion, but ultimately, right, toward resurrection. Right? That's where the story goes. That's where the story goes. 
a choice between, at this point in time, two visions of life, right? Toiling under a harsh and vindictive God that you can never please, and harsh and spiritual, harsh spiritual leadership that present that as a vision of life in God, or Jesus who says, no, I, I can give you rest. I can give you a glimpse of foreshadowing into what every day will be like in the kingdom. Which, which pathway will you choose? So let's make it personal. You and I have to make that choice as well. Most important question that exists, who do, who do you say that I am? Who is Jesus? Will you cling stubbornly to who you think Jesus should be or fear that he is or hope that he will be or will you go to Jesus and say, Jesus, who are you and, and I will believe? John chapter 14, verse 6, Jesus says this about himself. He says, I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. I am the one. And I'm, I'm the promised one. I'm the one who can bring blessing. I'm, I can bring blessing that no one else can bring because I alone can remove the debt of sin. Any of the, the failures that you have done in life, I can remove, I can remove that debt. And I'm the only one who can give you life that lasts forever. I'm the only one who can give you a relationship with God that is eternal, it is secure, it is safe. The way is very narrow, but it is open to all. Will you come through Jesus? And I want to challenge you this morning, if you have never made that decision for Jesus, that you do so this morning. You know, I, I literally, I mean, I, I pray for uh, these moments uh, constantly, uh, every Saturday, I actually walk through this whole auditorium. I walk up and down all the aisles and I pray for every seat in this place. Any person that might come, that might come not having yet believed in Jesus and Jesus alone, that you'd have a moment in here. And I will tell you, there are many others who've had moments in here where finally, just it clicks. They say, yes, I believe. I believe that Jesus is not just Savior of the world. I believe he's my Savior. I believe I have a debt of sin and Jesus can remove it. I want a Sabbath moment. I want a moment in which I, I just say yes and I receive. And I stop toiling and laboring and trying to prove that I'm good enough. Instead, I just accept a gift. The gospel is very humbling. Gospel tells us, really, you actually can never be good enough on your own. But Jesus is good enough. The Father accepted him, and so if you're in Jesus, the Father accepts you, and that's the only way in. It's just through Jesus. It's very humbling, but it's also very freeing. You don't have to toil and strive and labor any longer. Just receive. And so I want to encourage you, if you've never made that decision, that you would make it right now. Right now. And if you do make it now in this moment, please tell somebody. And if there's a friend that you came with, or if you want to come up afterwards and talk to me, or talk to Tim, or talk to someone, tell somebody about the decision that you've made. Because it is the most important decision that you'll ever make. You're answering the most important question that's ever existed. And from that question, all of the other hard questions in life begin to be answered. Now church, I know that most of you have made that decision. But still every day you have to make a choice. Do I follow the pathway of Jesus? Or do I toil? Right? And do I labor and do I wonder and doubt? Have I really done enough? Can I do enough? Is what I have enough? What I can accomplish enough? We labor and toil and strive. And every single day you you have to make a decision. Do you follow that pathway of Jesus? And you say, I'll take his yoke, which means he's in charge. He gets to say what today is about. Or do I say, no, I'll be in charge and I will figure life out. 
I'm going to make life work my way. And Christians, every day we have to make that choice. So why, why is that so hard for us when Jesus offers us something so beautiful? I will just speak for myself personally. One of the reasons for me is because I'm so stinking impatient. But I just, I, want, I really, I want kingdom now. And sometimes I kind of expect kingdom now and I'm shocked when I don't get kingdom right now. Or if I can put it in these Sabbath terms, Sabbath rest is never complete today. Never ever, right? My best days are often followed by my worst days, right? This last week, I had a really great uh, appointment at lunch, and then I came back to the office, and I had a not great at all kind of appointment. I'm like, oh man, this, this was almost like this little shadow, this glimpse into the Sabbath at lunch, and then it, it evaporated, we, we want what we want and we want it right now. I've actually stopped praying for patience because I don't want God to bring circumstances in my life to teach me patience. But even in Jesus' day, right? It wasn't kingdom. Even when Jesus was on earth, he didn't heal everyone. And even those whom he healed, he didn't heal them forever, right? Lazarus was raised from the dead and then Lazarus died. John the Baptist was thrown in prison. He's Jesus' right-hand man. He's the forerunner. He should have a great place of honor. Instead, he lost his head. Right? And so God gives us, in a sense, one day out of seven, or he gives us moments, he gives us little glimpses, and he says, you know what, that moment, that's what all of eternity will be like, but not yet. Okay, but not yet. book of Hebrews develops this concept deeply. It says in chapter four, so there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God, right? The real Sabbath is out here. And in the meantime, we have to learn to wait patiently and trust. So how do we apply this specifically? Uh, If I can ask the men to go back and uh, get communion prepared. Uh, As we close, we're going to celebrate communion together. But I want to give you first just a couple of specific application points. The first is this. When life is not what you expected, we have to learn to trust and hope. When we don't get what we want, when we want, what we think God should give us or owes us, we have to learn to, to trust and hope. Now, what is that? That mean even more specifically. That's pretty general. Uh, if you are going through life and you're angry at God or you're deeply disappointed in God or you're just generally angry with life in the world, then that's like a little light on the dashboard of your car saying something's wrong in your soul. And you need to step back and learn to trust what God has given today in this moment and also what God is going to give for eternity but you need to examine, what am I actually expecting from God now? What has God promised me right now? It's not to say that we're fatalistic, right? We, we labor to make life good for ourselves and for others, but we also realize we're not in the kingdom. So let's step back. And second, I would say when life does bring those good gifts, enjoy them and give thanks, right? So often we, we work for these things, we pray for these things, and we get these things, we assume that we got them on our own. And for me, one of the greatest spiritual disciplines is when I actually just stop and literally count the blessings and name the blessings that God has provided and realize everything that I have in life is a gift from God. And third, at all times, give and keep giving. Because that's how we imitate God. God doesn't need anything from us. He's not a God who has to take from us. Instead, he's a God who gives and he gives and he gives. So if life's most important question is, 
Who do you say that I am? Who is Jesus? And we know the answer. Then we have the most precious treasure, valuable treasure that exists. So let's not keep it to ourselves. Right? It's a stewardship. It's not a possession just for us. So I want to challenge you, church. Maybe you have some friends or family members who they're resistant or maybe even you're fearful to approach them. Pray and seek opportunities and do good for them and serve them and find out ways that you can bless them and say, God, let me, get, let me have the opportunity to get the gospel into their lives because that is, that's the issue, right? That's the most important question. All the other questions in their lives are going to fall into place when they understand who Jesus in fact is. So church, we cannot be bashful about that. We're about to celebrate communion together and in communion we remember what we've received But as we're served, I want us not just to remember what we've received, but also to think about the people around us who haven't yet believed. So if I can, ask the men to come forward and serve us. And let's take a few moments quietly. Let's give thanks for what we have received in Jesus. But also pray for those around us who who don't know him. And let's just take a few moments quietly, and then we'll take the elements together. Lord Jesus, in the night in which he was betrayed, he took bread. When he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Let's take the bread together. Then in the same way, he took the cup also after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Let's take the cup together. Jesus, we thank you for your body and blood. We thank you for giving us life. Thank you for not leaving us in darkness, but showing us a vision of life, showing us a vision of who you are and all that you have for us. Pray, Father, that we would treasure that gift and stir within us a passion to share that gift with those who do not know your son, Jesus. Thank you, Father.